welcome to the Dignity and Respect in Action podcast. This series is brought to you by the UMass Office of Equity and Inclusion and features members of the university community and other experts in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In these episodes, we'll learn about the work and experiences of our guests and gain insight from their expertise. Your host for this podcast is Dr. Nefertiti Walker, Interim Vice Chancellor of Equity and Inclusion and Professor of Sport Management in the Eisenberg School of Management. And now, here's Neff. Hello, and thank you for continuing to tune in to Dignity and Respect in Action, a podcast. I am your host, Dr. Neff Walker. In our last episode, we spoke with the director of the Stonewall Center, Dr. Jenny Beeman, about the history of the UMass Stonewall Center, LGBTQ plus activism on campus, and about how to make a welcoming environment for trans and non-binary students at UMass. Today, I'm excited to welcome one of my favorite Twitter follows, Associate Professor and PhD Program Director at the College of Nursing, Dr. Ray Walker. Dr. Walker is here today to talk about their work at the College of Nursing and about the important work of designing for justice. Dr. Walker, welcome to the show. Um, you already know that I'm a fan of your, of your Twitter um, account, um, but I'm excited also to learn more about your work. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So let's get things started with an introduction. I'm wondering if you could tell us about yourself and the career path that brought you to work at UMass. Sure, uh, sure. I, um, I'm never quite sure where to start with such stories, except that I'm, as you mentioned, now an associate professor here in the College of Nursing. I had never initially set out to become a professor, nor to really be a nurse. Um, I had the privilege to go to college the first time around for degrees in completely different subjects. And it wasn't until after I had graduated and spent a few years serving in the Peace Corps and being exposed to some of the badass nurses and midwives that I saw really just doing all of the work of health and healthcare uh, where I was uh, stationed in uh, Mali, West Africa. I was just so impressed with them. And I thought that was really kind of a superpower that they had to be so connected to the people they were working with and for, to be so attuned to what was going on with folks when they came into the clinic or the health center, even without a whole lot of uh, technology or, or sort of other supports. And um, that was really inspiring. And it also was just deeply humbling uh, to realize how little I knew about any of that. Um, it felt many times like I had very little to offer. I was really more just benefiting from learning from those folks and, and from observing um, and getting to be part of that community for uh, a few years. Uh, so when I came back to the U.S., I enrolled in nursing school and with the view towards graduating and, and then going back out to the world somewhere um, doing that work that I'd been so impressed by, uh, but ended up getting rerouted soon after my graduation, uh, being offered a job in this cancer center there at Johns Hopkins uh, down in Baltimore where I'd been in school. And uh, it was the opposite of everything I planned to do. It was highly technological, it was acute care, it was critical care, it was 
in a space of oncology care that had never been a particular draw for me, but it was such a unique space in terms of teamwork across disciplines and a space where nurses, even though um, many of these large health systems are very physician driven, um, they recognized that the nurses there on the bone marrow transplant unit where I was working had perhaps the most constant and intimate knowledge of the patients we were caring for. And so when uh, a person who we were caring with and for was critically ill, it was actually the nurse who gave rounds on the patient as opposed to the physician fellow or resident. Um, and that was just an immersion in a space that I had never expected to work, but in retrospect, really appreciated getting to see how that can look uh, in a very different context. Um, and then from there, I was, I was actually recruited into a PhD program that focused on addressing health inequities and um, had a bunch of multidisciplinary support systems in place to work with public health and, and other disciplines and um, mentors who were already really grounded in community in Baltimore and uh, other spaces surrounding that city. And they mentored me into a new form of nursing, which wasn't uh, so much nursing in say the hospital setting, but this, this notion of nursing the community. And when that was done, and, and once I'd finished up some additional postdoc training, I looked around and realized everyone who had taught me was there at, at Hopkins. And um, maybe it was time to look for a space outside of that community where I could um, help to support this kind of work. And UMass was not a space I'd ever visited before, but they were working on hiring an endowed chair of social justice in the College of Nursing. And that really spoke to me from the standpoint of an institutional commitment to certain values. Uh, so even though it was really far from anywhere else I had been professionally at that point, I accepted the position here and have um, really appreciated the last six years getting to know more about this community or set of communities and um, you know how we may create new futures through our work here. Thank you for that. Um, I want to just follow up with one aspect of you know your story of how you got to UMass. How did you have the courage to jump into nursing? I mean I feel like you know I try to pull out pieces of our of these conversations in the mm -hmm. podcast that speaks to everyone, whether it's faculty, students, um, staff, people in our community that aren't necessarily um, working or living in our in our space on campus. But I feel like that story is one that will resonate with a lot of people to have the mm -hmm. courage to go to school for a particular profession or degree and then decide to switch. We certainly know um, the influence um, of, you know, what influenced you to do that, but the courage. Like, can you talk a little mm -hmm. bit about just weighing um, that decision, like, you know, do you go back to school for something completely different? Do you right. not, right. Um, you know, what are some things that you had to give up? Um, I, I don't know. I feel like that's a space where it might be helpful for people to hear that process. 
Sure. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. One I don't know that I've really reflected upon in this way before. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I should first just I should disclose some standpoints. So presently, I am a white, queer, trans, non-binary, fat, non-disabled professor of nursing. Um, I. I grew up in a relative comfort and privilege. And so even to be able to go to school once and then to have the privilege to go back and say, gee, I might want to go again is, is, is a context that I know is not the same for, for many folks um, who may also just financially not have that option. When I came back to the US from my time abroad, which was really a mind expanding time. Um, and I've, I've, evolved in my thoughts since too about programs like the, the Peace Corps programs that sort of send uh, often relatively young uh, graduates to other parts of the world um, and, and what, what we're really doing there. But um, nursing, I don't know that it felt like a courageous step. It felt like I wanted to be of service. Um, I had been previously admitted into the US military's officer corps. And I, I declined to go into the Peace Corps because I grew up in a, a family with a strong military background. So I guess I was just always of this mindset that I needed to invest in a profession that would in some way be of service. And I think that's a very common characteristic across many folks who go into nursing for a variety of reasons. I think if I knew now what I knew then about some of the vulnerability of that experience, some of what I might've been exposed to, um, some of just the current realities of working within the nursing profession, which is a incredibly rewarding. And also as we've seen in this pandemic, often deeply challenging profession, um, I'd probably have a lot more <laughs> concerns on my mind and, and a lot more resources and, and ideas too about how to answer them. I think I was just very um, both naive and also just uh, goal-driven. And I'd like to think I've remained fluid in my perspective on the work I do as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I love my job here. I think it's one of the best jobs a person could have. I mean, the privilege of being a professor for a public university with the kinds of resources and community that UMass has. I mean, how many folks get to do that? I I take that very seriously. I believe that we work for the people and the public. I don't believe like folks even necessarily need to be say matriculated students here to work with me. I I like to invite nurses and and folks across healthcare and other spaces if, if my expertise or or resources I have access to can help support them to do work in the world that's going to improve health or equity in some sense, then, you know, I I think that's the role of a public university professor is to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. I don't know if that answered your question, but. No, it did. It did. I did. It tells me a bit of more and our, our listeners a bit more about your story. Um, and I do think it's, you know, courageous whenever you can decide to make a shift in your life. Um, it's so much easier sometimes to just continue on the path that everyone's expecting of you. 
Um, yes. So I appreciate you yeah. telling that story. And, and we have every year uh, in the College of Nursing, we have a group of second degree nursing students mm-hmm. who enroll. It's a very, it's maybe our largest class size. And, and that is folks who, like you said, have made a choice at some point to redirect their energy and go down this path of doing a nursing degree. And I get to teach in that program. And I love that program because I feel like I learn so much from the students in that program and what they bring with them to that space. And to to be able to do that is is really just such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Um, I wanna pivot a bit now and I want to talk a little bit about your creative work um, that you're doing as a nurse and in healthcare innovation. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about that work Um, your nursing innovation work and some of the projects that you're excited about right now? Sure. Um, Yeah, kind of like not setting out to be a a nurse or a professor. I did not set out to be a nurse innovator. (laughs) um, (laughs) I've sort of fallen into this this role or this title, um, ironically, actually, through protest which I can get to in a second. I, I mean, I came to UMass knowing that UMass was a research intensive space and certainly nursing science has been around for quite a long time. And, and as a PhD prepared nurse, this is something I've been trained to do is to, to innovate and to generate knowledge for, for our profession and for the folks we work with and for. Uh, so I, I came with, with some ideas from work I'd done in Baltimore and, and in other actually rural communities that I had also been a part of down in Southern Virginia about you know, how we might try to leverage some of the resources of UMass to build new practice models for supporting, especially folks who've uh, ever received a cancer diagnosis and who either are maybe living in a geographically isolated space or even just you know, somewhat rurally like here we have the hill towns, we have places that are a bit separate from say some of the massive health centers in places like Boston where some people may go and seek treatment mm-hmm. or surgery say after a, a serious diagnosis. So I was interested in building that. Um, there were a lot of other things being built here at UMass at the time, including this Institute for Applied Life Sciences, which is this big massive multidisciplinary translational science center that focuses a lot on technology and data science and engineering and and pharmaceuticals and other such things. Um, So we started to build some of that, but as I attended more meetings of industry partners and of some of these multidisciplinary projects in say the technology for healthcare space, it just seemed like nursing was never at the table. at the time, this is a few years ago, or at least if we were, it was sort of more as an attendee rather than as um, experts who were being consulted on not just how to solve certain health care challenges, but what the challenges we should be solving for were in the first place. And by extension then too, since nursing works at such a, a proximal point to patients and communities, I didn't really see patients or patient advocates or caregivers in those spaces either. It often seemed to be executives and CEOs and 
maybe a few bench scientists or engineers or technology folks, um, but not from that standpoint. And after one particularly egregious meeting where there was a lot of discussion about how to invest very, very large sums of money that were available to do innovative work. The conversation focused a lot on maintaining medication adherence, or as the people in the room were calling it, patient compliance with medication. This idea that folks should take their medicine as prescribed in a very particular way. And uh, people were very happy to build technology that might track how well people did that, um, or might, for instance, say, like, give you a little zap if you hadn't taken your two o'clock medication, oh, wow. what have you. Yeah. Um, and that, that technology actually exists. Um, but when I offered up from the perspective of being a nurse who both worked in critical care settings, as well as out in community spaces, you know, with homebound individuals, other folks who face myriad challenges to just getting through the day and, and brought up some of the factors behind those challenges that have so much less to do with technology and so much more to do with the, the social and built environment, with, with structural inequity and oppression, um, everything from lack of transportation to um, racism and transmissia and, and other such things baked into the system. There was really very little um, space in that room to talk about that or how we might invest resource in addressing those issues. It, it was sort of clear that the agenda for what was going to be developed had already been set well in advance of the meeting and we were just gonna find a way to operationalize that. And I was so frustrated and, and truly angry um, on behalf of folks I, I work with and for that I, I was looking for a place to register my complaint <laughs> that there seems to be a real fundamental exclusion happening of the people most impacted by the research and innovation work we do. And it happened at the time that the American Association for the Advancement of Science had this invention ambassadors program uh, going, which had applications open. And it was really for folks who had uh, done interesting inventions, um, who maybe had a number of patents and who could be quote unquote, the face of invention. And uh, these were like uh, the inventor of the digital camera, <laughs> the inventor of those glasses that when you put them on, if, if you have a color blindness or limitations to your color vision, they actually, for some folks, allow you to see in full spectrum yeah. color vision. So very impressive folks. I knew I would never belong to that group, but the people who sat on the application review board were very powerful people in charge of federal agencies and the US Patent and Trademark Office and other groups that register new technologies. And they had a video option where you could submit a two minute video instead of an essay. And I figured that if I made a video explaining what an injustice it was that patients and caregivers and nurses keep getting left out of the agenda setting, um, at least for two minutes, somebody would have to listen to that video who was on that yeah. review panel. And at least maybe for two minutes, we would be heard. Mm -hmm. And I sent off my video and my little application and I kind of forgot about it. And then like a month later, I got an email saying, congratulations, <laughs> you've been advanced to the final round. And, and I ultimately became an invention ambassador 
Wow. Um, the first the video first, worked. The video worked. Um, and I, I don't know what it was about it that connected with someone in that room, but I think just about everyone in any room has either themselves personally been in the position either as a patient or as someone caring for a loved one of seeing the system not work for you or them. And some of them, once I was in the program, reflected that back to me when, when I was inducted um, as the, the first nurse to represent that position, um, I got more hugs, this is pre-pandemic, uh, more hugs from like federal agency directors and people who, who I think this, like recognize this is a need um, but we've not yet quite reoriented our structures and pipelines mm -hmm. to address it. Um, so, so that's part of what I see my job as now is representing nursing, not just as a profession, but just these ideas, uh, which also come from the space of say, disability justice, this, this idea of nothing about us without us, um, you know, to, the technology space and, and especially at the intersections of communities we care for and technology. Um, not just that technology is the answer, but that we're either building technologies in ways that center the leadership and perspectives of the folks who will be most impacted by those innovations or when we have technologies that are not working to serve people that are doing harm to some uh, groups within our communities that we are able to recognize that and to correct and, and if necessary, dismantle and transform those spaces. Wow, thank you for that. Um, there's so many, I was, you probably saw me jotting down notes. There's yeah. so many little gems that you said that I would love to um, dive much deeper into, but I know, you know, we are bound by time. Right. Um, but with that being said, I, I feel like a lot of that story spoke to a very important aspect of at least the work that we do in Office of Equity and Inclusion, which is representation. And uh, the, the idea behind the power of representation and having someone mm -hmm. who can speak to specific experiences, um, specific identities, that aren't represented in the conversations and how that shifts everything, right? It shifts mm -hmm. how um, money is spent. It shifts how policy is written. Um, and I think it's just amazing that you were able to, with your two minute video, as well as all of your accolades and accomplishments and CVs and things like that, I'm sure also they took into account, but you were able to get across to them the importance of having someone that can speak to um, in some ways for and represent all of the voices that are left out um, on that particular board. Um, to me, that's just incredibly powerful. Um, Thanks, I, I, I hope that I'm at least able to raise these questions. Um, I, I, I think I am also trying to be accountable in terms of speaking only from my own experience or, or trying not to sort of overstep what I can speak to, but also, uh -huh to wherever possible, bring other voices into the room, like the, like the whole sort of pass the mic, like I don't need to be speaking yeah. for if I can get other folks to the table and, you know, keep that door open and like pull others in that it just not, it's, it's increasingly interesting to me to observe how it's never, it never seems like a nefarious exclusion. You know, it's not like folks are kind of here, like, 
if you could see my hands, I'm kind of rubbing them together and being like, who, yeah. who can I exclude today? But just like, it just doesn't register, uh, you know, the number of um, venture capitalist invested technologies I've seen pitched over the last several years, um, not necessarily by people at UMass, but in some of these spaces yeah. where when I, as the nurse ask like, okay, you've built this technology for say, folks currently experiencing dementia. How many of those folks have you actually spoken to? Like, what do they have to say about your innovation? Is this the problem that they feel needs to be mm -hmm. solved? And just the sort of deer in headlights look yeah. of like, what do you mean? <laughs> Talk to yeah. people. Like, that's not part of this, this plan. You know, clearly you see this is a great technology. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, it, it, how do you even know you've solved the problem that needs to be solved? Like, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, and, and increasingly now we're working in the space of artificial intelligence, which is this huge, huge umbrella um, and, and a space where I see healthcare increasingly, you know, there are these buzzwords that people sort of jump on, um, biomarkers, precision medicine, um, and now artificial intelligence, which can mean a lot of things, but it's it's being rolled out in such a way as to at times kind of steamroll over existing agendas of what <laughs> we've already been told individuals and communities need that maybe don't involve a lot of fancy technology, um, but but maybe the investment of energy and resource into those technologies are going to have implications for <laughs> how well we meet the needs of those individuals. Absolutely. And I'm going to come back to that conversation related to technology. But sure. before then, you said something else. And I told you, you, you said a lot of things that really resonated with me. But I want to touch on one more thing. Um, nothing about us without us. Mm -hmm. um, I'm certainly um, aware of, of that phrase in the meeting. Can you explain that phrase and its meaning to some of our listeners, at least how it resonates with you and how it's um, relevant in your field? Sure. So it's a um... It's not a new phrase, and many folks know it from the space of uh, especially disability activism and justice. And before that, it came from some other spaces as well. But you know, the way I understand it is, as you said, you know, so much of what happens with any design enterprise, whether that's research or developing curricula or uh, patient education and public health messaging, has to do with, with from whose perspective is the work being done and whose needs and strengths and preferences and ideas are being centered in that work. And in healthcare and nursing and public health generally, there's for many, many decades been longstanding conversations about so-called health disparities, um, this idea that, that certain groups uh, do not uh, have as, as good health outcomes on certain measures as other dominant groups in society, particularly white, cisgender, non-disabled individuals in society are often used as the reference point. And yet these projects are often because of the way power exists currently in both academia and healthcare systems and also industry. Uh, the folks in the design seat, so to speak, are often those individuals, they're, they're, they're folks who are sort of imagining the needs of a so-called other without necessarily always inhabiting the actual lived experience of the community that they are supposedly designing for. 
Some groups do a better job of designing with than others. Um, and I think that's where the, nothing about us without us comes in is either, you know, either you have the individuals who are supposedly the, the focus of the work, either as, you know, potential users of the technology or as folks who are currently experiencing some injustice or inequity for whom you are trying to come up with a better care system um, or approach. You either like are actually having them in charge, like the power is with them to decide. I think that is the one of the most ideal situations you could ask for, or in a world where there's still this fundamental imbalance in the distribution of power, where you still have overwhelmingly, for instance, white, cisgender, non-disabled faculty members developing curricula or leading industry organizations or what have you, you better then have some accountability systems where communities who are going to be impacted by those decisions are there in the room telling you what they see as the needs and the, the solutions. And you are actively listening to that and having <laughs> resource go towards where they say, um, as opposed to another approach that I have seen uh, a, you know, commonly is folks are maybe quote in the room or quote at the table, but they express the need, the preference, the perspective, and then those ideas are sort of registered and the pre-existing agenda goes forward anyway with yeah. this sort of superficial wrapping of like, oh, look, we've, we've, we've practiced inclusion here. You know, yeah. aren't we being so engaged? Um, and that's a little bit revolutionary still in the space of health care, um, because up until more recently, and even I would say now, there could be a lot of talk about inclusion and engagement and uh, patient-directed design or community-directed design, but there wasn't a whole lot of accountability to actually practice that. Nobody was coming back behind folks with a report card trying to figure out like, okay, so to what extent did anybody meaningfully get to weigh in on what you should do here? Or really, did you just sort of go forward with your agenda and, and kind of brought these folks in on the back end to kind of share back and create this sort of optics of engagement. Yeah. Um, and, and in curriculum too, I think our, our health curricula, including in nursing, still reflect that. And that's been a subject of some discussion um, between me and others uh, with national leadership in nursing is, um, you know, to what extent have materials, textbooks, um, research agendas, uh, everything, everything um, been, been held to account uh, for the, the perspectives that they reflect for the history of how those agendas have evolved and to what extent they may need to be, really do need to be fundamentally transformed if we're actually gonna practice this, yeah. this notion of, of equity and justice, the way we say on paper, the way everybody this summer suddenly released statements yeah. saying, we are committed to fighting hate and systemic racism and oppression wherever we find it, blah, 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 blah. But like yeah. how many organizations actually then went back and redistributed the power mm -hmm. over those design agendas? Not that many. And so now it falls on, I think those of us who have some power in these systems, which I would include myself, I'm lucky to serve on some national boards and other advisory committees, feel like we have to now 
hold ourselves and others to account for this, including where necessary, ceding power and, and putting others who need to be the ones being listened to in that space. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I've, I've declined quite a few plenary panels this past year when I asked, you know, so who else is on this panel? And they come back and tell me, you know, more or less like, here is this homogenous group of people who are once again going to opine on anything from like surveillance technologies to how we do health disparities research. And, um, I've, I've had a policy in place for about the last year and a half where I will not accept to promote or speak in those spaces if they have not already established like leadership and accountability to the groups that should be represented. Um, otherwise, I'm just reifying harm. Um, so I have a really nice list of speakers that I send now when folks yeah. um, push back and say, oh, we can't possibly, you know, whatever. Um, I will happily give up my spot. But um, also, I, I just think like this is this is wholesale work that needs to be done across all of all of healthcare, at least as I've experienced it thus far. Yeah. Well, I would say healthcare is not alone. (laughs) When I think about these issues of representation and we've seen, you know, all of the um, viral Twitter posts related to the mantles and on and on and on, right? Mantles, Um, wannels. Yeah. yeah. Even, yeah, even as a a trans and non-binary person, I feel like I have just my lived experience and I, I cannot be yeah, you, you can't have onlys either. It can't be just yeah. like one person on a, on a massive panel who's now supposed to represent, you know, yeah. groups as monoliths. It's, and that really is a mind shift I am finding for a lot of national organizations who are just used to having their kind of pool of speakers, the sort of mm-hmm. people, people who are the go-tos, the people who've been groomed for leadership because that's how social networks work and that's how gatekeeping yeah. works. And that's just, quote, the way it's been forever and ever and ever. And the way it's been is is not only not good enough, it's actively doing harm and it needs to stop. Yeah. And I feel like the way it's been is also those people that, you know, these organizations have that they go back to. Um, they're safe. They understand what the institution needs to perpetuate itself. Um, and they can depend on these individuals to say and do the things that the institution needs to perpetuate itself, right? Absolutely. Um, and institutions are, if institutions are not good at anything, it is preserving themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, and, and particularly white dominated institutions are very good at preserving themselves. I've yeah. found, um, we've had, um, we had a panel that we were invited to give recently uh, addressing some of these topics canceled um, <laughs> by the institution when they realized uh, the full outline of what we were going to speak to. And, yeah. and it's, it's never explicit. It's never out in spaces. Oh, well, we're canceling you because X, Y, Z. It's always a euphemism like, well, this isn't the right fit right now, or, oh, this isn't quite the right match to our mission at the moment, or, we need to postpone, et cetera, et cetera. It's like a thousand yeah. ways that people can find to reframe what is, like you said, um, really trying to stick with what's quote safe, which is yeah. the status quo, mm-hmm. which is profoundly unsafe as you know, for so many yeah. <laughs> people yeah. who've been harmed by it. 
No, I agree. And it takes, it takes intentional effort. I mean, I think of some of the things we do on campus and it, it takes intentional effort by lots of people to disrupt the institution um, mm-hmm. and to not fall back into the comfort zone of um, promoting and, uh, you know, putting people in front of speak or organizations and people to speak that we know are safe are going to say the things mm-hmm. that it takes, you know, an incredible amount of courage for institutions to do that individually. Um, it should be much easier for people individually to do it, but yeah. for institutions that are sort of built and structured and designed um, to sustain itself, it, it becomes very difficult and takes so much intention, which is why I appreciate the work that you're doing, because if we're doing the work in OEI and you're doing the work with your colleagues and, and nursing and other folks are doing similar work across campus, um, there will come a time where we can sort of um, shift the culture of our campus mm-hmm. and our institution to be much more equitable and inclusive. But mm-hmm. it's going to take all of us constantly disrupting the institution because the institution wants to get back to who it is <laughs> and who it has been. Um, so, yeah, so I appreciate that conversation. And um, I want to, I want to, pivot a bit to the conversation about technology. You mentioned it a few times briefly. um, And when people typically think about technology and design, it's, they think of it as value neutral, right? It's um, free of bias, it's value neutral. Um, It should be, it's design, it's technology, right? It's not a human. So it doesn't have the biases that we have. Right. And we know that this is not true. And I also know from following you on Twitter and looking at some of your work and talks that um, this is something that you've taken issue with. Um, so can you speak to that a little bit? Can you talk about um, how bias manifests itself and, and has impacts on users within the world of technology in your space and in your field? Sure, sure. And actually just in, in light of our our previous discussion since you mentioned tech, you know, I think one of the ways that institutions maintain the status quo is by isolating those who are voices of dissent and making them either <laughs> feel alone or like it's impossible or like you're never going to move this rock, so don't bother. Um, one of the things I love about Twitter and some of these other spaces is that although social media platforms, as we've seen, especially this year, can be a hellscape in some ways. (laughs) That is a place where folks who are possibly onlys or who are trying to roll a rock up a hill in this sort of Sisyphean task of the individual work of trying to move institutions can Mm -hmm. find each other, can see each other, can feel seen, and can actually collaborate, as you said, can can act collectively Mm -hmm. to move institutions into action or transformation. And I love that. But technology can also, as you said, have, have, um, have bias and harms because technology is not neutral and technology is created by humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Timnit Jebu, who, who was the lead for the ethical AI team at Google and recently fired in a, mm-hmm. a very, uh, or resignated, I think is the term, that somebody came up with was was told that she had resigned, <laughs> even though she had not resigned um, after she did some research with her team, illustrating some of the potential harms of technologies that yeah. uh, Google and others work with. Um, she she gave a fantastic presentation the other day about you know how technology and especially numbers and data, anything with this sort of veneer of objectivity to it presents this quote unquote view from nowhere. 
it's imagined to be a completely neutral view that you know came from some objective space we call I don't know science, um, and it's it's now you know unassailable because isn't this better than having messy, complicated humans with their own internalized biases doing tasks or work or making decisions for us? If we can just give it to this extremely neutral algorithm per se, that's going to decide you know, what CVs to put in front of a manager's eyes for a new hire, or you know, who should be admitted to UMass next year or some so on and so forth. I'm not saying that's what UMass does. I'm just saying this is how large institutions are increasingly using algorithms and technology based on data. Um, and that is a very appealing story because it also fits very nicely into structures that currently shape society like capitalism, like mm -hmm. white supremacy, like ableism that say, you know, well, this is, you know, this, this is good. This is normal. This is objective. This is technology. And so more technology is better. And um, more advanced technology is going to better meet the needs of people, et cetera, et cetera. But we know it doesn't. Um, and Dr. Rua Benjamin, Dr. Meredith Broussard, Dr. Sasha Costanza-Chak, and many, many others from the space of critical race and digital studies, from the space of um, algorithmic justice and uh, data science and um, other fields that have actually long existed and are sort of evolving to, to address questions that are being raised by some of these emergent technologies like facial recognition or all of the sensors we now have in both healthcare and just civic life. Um, they are showing us like with, with also data and with human stories, how technology contains bias because it comes from people. And for the longest time, many of the people as we recently discussed who were in charge of the agendas for what technologies got built for what purpose to what ends and on what people were a fairly homogenous group. Um, somebody that uh, Joy Bulamwini, who founded the Algorithmic Justice League um, was recently on, I think the cover of Time. Like she's, she's gotten a lot of press lately for her work on facial recognition. Uh, she calls the, the pale males. Um, so, so white men, but, but also just more generally folks who had access to education in certain spaces who were often um, from fairly privileged backgrounds who would have access either through both social networks and other networks of privilege to those spaces. And um, in healthcare, this has played out in lots of ways uh, and, and not necessarily just with newer technologies. So we do have newer technologies like sensors, uh, which in various forms have been around for a while, but you know, some research recently came out, for instance, about you know, with COVID, um, the importance of understanding oxygen saturation for mm -hmm. folks who are self-monitoring at home. Well, it turns out, you know, when you train algorithms on homogenous data sets that are say, mostly lighter skinned and or white people, and then you deploy that technology out in the real world, guess what? It doesn't perform the same on every individual <laughs> based on, um, you know, the, the, the nature of the design process itself. So it's, not functioning uh, optimally, especially among uh, darker skinned individuals or folks whose, whose data weren't included in those data training sets. And, and as a result, that has health consequences. People's 
O2 sats, as we call them, um, might dip or drop or fluctuate and the sensor is not picking it up properly, which means that has other sequelae in terms of you know, whether then uh, a critically ill person or somebody who needs to then go access support and care gets that support and care. Um, and that goes back to, to even technologies like BMI, which is uh, you know, a 200 plus year old metric that was invented by a Belgian mathematician to quote unquote describe the average male. <laughs> and, um, and it's a number that's very appealing. It's easy to calculate. It's been sort of ingrained into our health assessment systems and what have you. And, and it turns out if you really pick it apart as one mathematician, Kathy O'Neill did, um, it's been called mathematical snake oil. It really does not hold up to any valid metric in the world of health. Yeah. And yet it has been used to drive everything from fat shaming to differential classifications of risk scores for insurance mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. This barometer similarly invented by Dr. John Hutchinson who worked for an insurance company that didn't wanna give insurance payouts to workers who were not white. So mm -hmm. they made it so that it had a button on it that was to adjust for quote race under no scientific pretense whatsoever, but has been now ingrained in our healthcare systems such that those quote race corrections still persist in electronic health records and assessment tools based on spirometer uh, lung function tests. That's what spirometers uh, measure that go back now, you know, <laughs> hundreds of years um, to, to what was truly like a, a, a racist agenda. Mm -hmm. Gender is another one in electronic health records gender is treated like a fixed construct and like one that is also conflated constantly with sex and the two things are different. And so the result is then having people assigned care that has no correlation whatsoever, maybe to actual needs for care based on say the, the organs they possess or how they show up in the world or getting misgendered and, and having violence done to them when they show up for health appointments, because when something's in the health record, it's like immutable and very, very hard to change. And the health records themselves were originally electronic health record software was accounting software. It was accounting software that was repurposed for hospital systems to ensure payers got paid. And now everything else we do, because we're mandated to use them, is plugged into a structure that is driven more by payers and insurance companies and capitalism than it is about actual quality care. Wow. Um, so those are all design choices. Yeah. You see showing up now too with online vaccine registrations. So mm -hmm. we have online vaccine registrations that assume there's no digital divide, that everybody has access to the technology they need to get an appointment. But even if you know, they have that technology, you know, oftentimes these websites, you know, they, they want to avoid getting spam. So they have these electronic uh, captures, these things with mm -hmm. a visual tool that you have to pick out, you know, how many fire hydrants in this yes. grid? Well, you know, boom, you've just excluded visually impaired folks or other folks who may not be able to access that security tool that is the gatekeeper to whether or not you can get a vac vaccination appointment. Um, and so on and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So um, I find the history of technology and the ways in which it has evolved fascinating. It was something I was never taught in my nursing training. 
It was something I was barely taught in my PhD training, but I think history is really critically important for anyone who's going to be not just using technology, but especially anyone who's going to sit at a table and make design choices about technology and, and where to invest resource. Like if you haven't read Dr. Rua Benjamin's Race After Technology or Meredith Broussard's Artificial Unintelligence or, or any of these other works that have really laid out for us um, these massive gaps in the logic that has led us to this moment, then I think you're really doing a disservice to the communities you're working with and for, because if you don't have knowledge of how we got here, you are, you are really set up to not only replicate the past, but with the power of the tools we have now to make it so much worse. Yeah. And, and we're seeing that play out with facial recognition and other sorts of surveillance technologies now as well. Things that have been built ostensibly for good to help keep communities safe or to help expedite the recognition of a person so they can get certain information faster or what have you. Um, are so easily repurposed and morphed into carceral technologies that um, differentially impact certain groups and especially trans and non-binary communities of color and disabled communities in ways that the designer teams either never anticipated or simply were never held to account to think about. And they're being adopted so rapidly now um, because again, this drive of, of more technology must be better, that um, it's hard to keep up with how quickly they are, are, are sort of emerging in ways that increasingly folks cannot escape, even yeah. if they are actively seeking to. And that's part of what's underlying a, a recent project we proposed in collaboration with a um, trans-led primary care clinic that's opening in Northampton called uh, TransHealth Northampton um, is to actually focus not so much on building new tech, although that might come out of this, but on building the infrastructure and capacity of communities, including um, folks who might identify within trans and non-binary communities in this area <laughs> to uh, recognize these types of technologies and data practices, how they're impacting them, because already often folks who, um, who are in this space have already been forced to navigate them and already have yeah. a certain knowledge about them that, that, yeah. that folks who haven't been are oblivious to, um, to center that expertise and to give them the tools um, that they need to then drive the agenda forward and to draw upon the resources of spaces like UMass, if appropriate, to then go either build new tech if that's what they decide they need, but also to push back on mm -hmm. some of the more harmful evolutions of technology that are rolling out and to offer perhaps you know, a, another path um, that might actually lead us to a future where everyone's needs are met, not just the ones who happen to you know, be in the room when the, the thing was built. Yeah. That's also fascinating um, and, and so important for our listeners. I mean, I learned quite a few things. The BMI piece, um, playing sports my whole life and having to constantly understand exactly what my BMI is. Right. There was a point where I had conversations um, about sort of, you know, all of the issues with BMI. Um, yeah. Particularly for me, I was more concerned with some of the racist issues 
yeah. um, underlying BMI um, and how yeah. it wasn't a very accurate way for me to track uh, my body composition um, or health in general. Oh. Um, so I, I appreciate that. Um, and then I started to think about, and this is me taking this very um, high level conversation down a couple of notches, but Black Mirror on Netflix, which I'm yeah. sort of obsessed with um, and how I'm constantly <laughs> seeing like, there's something that will happen on Black Mirror. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just read an article about that. Yeah. Um, so oh, it's, it's yeah. interesting. I feel like the rate of acceleration um, with our technological advances, it's very difficult for the average, me, I'm considering myself the average person, for the average person to keep up with the rate of acceleration and advancement in technology. Mm. Um, you know, some of the things that we can do um, and that we will be doing, we just have no idea that it's even coming, right? Mm. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, they're collecting this data constantly, listening to us on our phone, our TVs, all of that stuff. Right. And we're like, oh yeah, it's not a big deal. I don't, what are, you know, what am I doing? I don't care if they listen to me, but they're creating products with this. Yeah. You know, they're creating products that I read one very recently. I think it was Microsoft who's, yeah. you know, working with some big tech company and they've created a, a program to essentially be able to connect you with lost loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, they have all the data, oh, they know their tendencies, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they know how they speak, how they act, what they do to day to day, because they've collected this data over years and decades. Mm -hmm. So now they can recreate, um, you know, some embodiment of, of them. And that was wacky, but that was also a Black Mirror episode. So yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> no, no. So that's just where yeah. like science fiction um, is and like speculative fiction, I think really is a tool I'm seeing. Yeah folks that I respect in this space using or sort of pointing to because because there's there's nuggets of truth in in the yeah. origins of those stories and yeah like the, that thing about connecting the quote-unquote you know long-lost loved ones or whatever I I was at a I was on a panel at Facebook which is another one of these spaces and it was with one of the heads of AI for Facebook the head of AI for a major insurance company and the founder of an internet company. Three white men and me mm -hmm. on a panel about the future of AI and healthcare, which was already absurd. And I had protested participating in, and then uh, they refused to put anyone else on the panel. And so it was sort of a choice between, okay, do I show up and, and provide any sort of alternate yeah. perspective here or do, do I just sort of forego it? So I went and it wasn't what happened during the panel, it was what happened after it. So the panel ended and then uh, the, the, the person from the major insurance company and one of the people from Facebook um, had a little side conversation about uh, the agreement to share data because mm -hmm. Facebook has access to billions and billions of records. This insurance company has access to billions and billions of records. What could they do if they put those two sets of records together? And they were all yeah. super excited about like, oh, this will be great for, I don't know, diagnostic and preventive health and whatever. But in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh my God, I can't get my name changed on my health record to reflect like my current identity. But like you all can make a handshake deal about sharing yeah. billions and billions of records. And the other thing that came out in that conversation is the fact that these data models are so big now that even when you tell the algorithm not to include certain variables, like don't consider age or race or gender when you make these calculations, the programs will create those variables anyways based on covariance with other mm -hmm. things and, and data they've been collecting. So you can't, you can't sort of just like 
algorithmically justice your way out of the the problematic aspects of the algorithm it turns out yeah. sometimes you shouldn't be building algorithms in the first place yeah you can't disable race <laughs> and assume that the program is not going to be racist and um, and, and we'll yeah. still have like structural racism and other oppressions here and like that's yeah. that needs to factor into the decision making or we're just going to yeah. keep reifying this you know this nonsense about variables being intrinsic to people without ever looking at the environment in which health and other outcomes are produced, which is what data sets in healthcare, because they are increasingly using electronic health records to run the AI for these mm -hmm. programs. Well, what do eight electronic health records do? They collect data about individuals. Rarely, if ever, do they collect anything about the environment of care, about mm -hmm. interactions within that environment, about, say, experiences of gender discrimination or racism, mm -hmm. you know, or anything else. They just focus on the individual as if that's deterministic. Mm -hmm. And then what do we get? We get interventions and answers that have everything to do with changing people's behavior or changing people and nothing to do with challenging the environment in which those outcomes were created. Yeah. Wow. I could, I could, I could go, <laughs> I'm like, so I know yeah. we're out of time now, but I could go on and on yeah, about and um, this. No, I appreciate it. And I could go on and on with you about this and I have, you know, at least 15 um, bulleted points that I've written down throughout our conversation <laughs> and as well as questions that I haven't been able to get to. So we might need a part two um, to our conversation for sure, because I've enjoyed this and I think our listeners will too. But um, because we're now just about out of time, I want to make sure that I give you the opportunity to share anything else that you would like to share with our listeners. Um, if, if there's, you know, anything you'd like to discuss or really drive home, um, please, please do. Sure. Well, thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation as well. Um, I apologize for rambling in spaces. Not there. at all. <laughs> Things get me going. And there's so much work to do in this space. Um, so I guess there's a couple points. One is, I think I'm I'm, you know, presented here as as a member of this community, as a professor, et cetera. Um, that is, a, I guess, a, a type of expertise. I do not actually consider myself expert in any of this. I consider myself to be a constant learner who's probably messing things up on pretty much a daily basis. Um, I really strongly believe in the expertise of lived experience. I want that to be recognized in all spaces, including in technology and healthcare. And I think if we had, you know, everything from application systems to like, you know, forums where that was one of the criteria was lived experience, we would have a very different sort of distribution of power over decision making. Um, I'm happy to work with folks from any any background, nursing or otherwise, if if I can ever be of service to them. Um, and in terms of some of the work that I'm doing now around tech and how we use it and, and who's doing what, some of the questions that uh, I find useful to ask are where you can discern, you know, what, what is the history of this practice? Um, you know, how did we get this, this practice, this piece of technology? And in a course I'm teaching right now to some of our PhD students, it's about measurement and power in health research. Um, and I, I think this question of not just like, how do we do things that are scientifically quote rigorous, but how is power operating here? Like who wields it? 
who's benefiting from it, who's being harmed by it. Do you even have a way to know? If you don't, or if any of those answers are not clear, that's a design choice and maybe something that one should look into further. Um, and so uh, I think you could ask those questions for a lifetime and, and still have plenty more to do. And uh, for folks interested in asking those sorts of questions, um, I've, I'm happy to work with you, to learn with, uh, learn with you, to learn from you. And, um, and I also appreciate you, uh, Neff, uh, for, for all the work that you're doing and, and also what you, you put out into the Twitter sphere and elsewhere. So thanks for inviting me to be part of these conversations today. Absolutely, it was a pleasure. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you today. I've learned so much about the work that you're doing. And again, it was, I wrote down so many notes. Um, so I imagine our listeners, if, if you're listening to this, um, I hope you had pen and paper, right? Because, um, and I hope that there's an opportunity to have a part two with you, because I still have so many questions about things like design justice that we oh, didn't yeah. have an opportunity to, to discuss. So I think there might be, if we can find the time, a part two to this, to this moment. So um, the work you're doing is so incredibly important, and, and we absolutely value you here on our campus. So thank you so much for this conversation today, Dr. Walker. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Walker. Not often we get to say that. <laughs> I know, I know. And, um, you know, I, I, I was just reading this wonderful book uh, by Mariam Akaba, who just uh, published, has published many things, but this one's called We Do This Till We Free Us. And, and it was a, a, a two questions that I thought maybe uh, oftentimes it's wiser people whose, whose knowledge I put out into the world. Um, and maybe if I could offer these, these are actually from a, a person I consider to be just um, doing tremendous work in the world. And yes, please. Let's begin our abolitionist journey, not with the question, what do we have now and how can we make it better? Instead, let's ask, what can we imagine for ourselves and the world? If we do that, then boundless possibilities of a more just world await us. So, um, so I thank you. I thank Mary Amakaba, and uh, yeah, thank you for being in community here. Absolutely. And for our listeners, thank you for keeping up with us and for tuning in to the Dignity, Respect, and Action podcast. Please keep listening this month to learn more about women and gender diversity at UMass. Join us again later this month for interviews with Associate Dean of Student Recruitment, Inclusion, and Success. Joining us from the Commonwealth Honors College, Dr. Anne Marie Russell, as well as the College of Humanities and Fine Arts Dean, Dr. Barbara Krothheimer. Thank you all and talk soon.